0: Are living at a crossroads moment. I spoke to the leader of a London church this week and I said, How were his people doing? Not in their faith lives, but in their working lives. How would he characterize their mood? And he said, Anxiety. It's a church of young people. He said, Anxiety about getting on the housing ladder. Anxiety about a democracy that they distrust, and anxiety about future uncertainty. But he also said that he and they were gripped by a sense of opportunity in this moment. The sense that we stand at a crossroads moment. I also spoke this week to the head of a youth project in Blackbird Lees, and I asked her, How would she characterise the state of her young people at the moment? And she said, anxiety. Anxiety about family members in poor states of physical or mental health. Anxiety about redundancies amongst relatives and about future uncertainty. But she also said, it's a time of opportunity. We stand at a crossroads moment. What are you living for? The American monk Thomas Merton said, if you want to identify me, ask not where I live or what I like to eat or how I comb my hair, but ask me what I am living for. In detail, ask me what I think is keeping me from living fully the life I want to live. What are you living for? And what is it to step into your destiny that sense of right calling that God has his hand on you in a special way for special purposes Nehemiah is a man who stepped into his destiny for God at a similar crossroads moment where his people had been through a time of national disaster and they needed to start recovering and rebuilding now maybe Your dreams have stalled in the last year, or maybe you have been proceeding exactly as normal. Maybe your dreams have crashed, and you're currently seeking a new calling. Well, we meet in the presence of the living God tonight, the God who calls us into our destinies. And I believe he's going to call people tonight, and I believe he's going to recommission people tonight in what they're already doing. As this history book of Nehemiah opens, we're in the fifth century BC. 130 years earlier, the Babylonian Empire has come and ransacked Jerusalem, striking at the heart of the wayward people of God. Some of its community have got exiled to Babylon, some have remained in the ruined city. It's a national catastrophe, it's a spiritual trauma. And several decades later, some exiles return courtesy of the new empire of the day, the Persian Empire. An inferior temple is rebuilt, and 13 years before our book begins, Ezra the priest returns with another group of exiles. And again, he restores some of their worship. But the situation remains bleak. The people of God remain shaken by exile. It's a time of economic downturn. Many have turned from regular worship. The poor are exploited and neighboring cities are overrunning Jerusalem. And meanwhile, 900 miles east in what's modern-day Iran, a government official, Nehemiah, the son of exiles, serves within the Persian Empire. And he's about to receive a call from God. It's not going to be a supernatural call as with a, a burning bush, appearing to Moses or the angel of the Lord appearing on the threshing floor to Gideon. We don't read those words, and the word of the Lord came to Nehemiah. No, Hanani, a brother, perhaps a blood brother, perhaps simply a fellow Jew, comes from Jerusalem with a a bunch of other men. And Nehemiah asks them out of curiosity a very simple question. And our curiosity shapes the direction of our future, because the answer that he receives changes everything. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The news from Jerusalem, it interrupts Nehemiah's life. It initiates a crisis for him. And a true crisis always produces a sifting in a person. We grow through being tested in life. And in a crisis, unless you're going to, put your head in the sand or you're going to retreat in pessimism, you have to choose and reveal your heart. A crisis demands that our whole self be present. And Nehemiah here lets reality speak to him. He opens his eyes and he lets the suffering and the plight of his people touch him. From the privacy and the comfort of his life in the Persian Empire, he could remain Perfectly indifferent. But the needs of those on the margins of his life stop him in his tracks. He hears the spirit of God speaking to him from the margins, which is where God often speaks to his people from. And the imagery is simple and telling. Nehemiah sat down and wept and mourned and fasted for days. And then began praying day and night, actually for four months. Nehemiah cannot remain indifferent. He has an open heart. He receives a burden. And we have to come against indifference in our hearts. Indifference always blocks the work of the Spirit, the opportunities that God seeks to invite us into. God is looking for willing hearts and when you receive god's call your heart joins with the heart of god it joins with the compassionate moved stirred heart of jesus christ you see heaven has to break down nehemiah's walls before he can go and rebuild the walls of jerusalem our biggest need today is to be touched by god nehemiah is touched by the plight of his brothers and sisters, 900 miles away. And when his heart is broken, God can use him. And the availability of his heart will determine the extent of his future influence. But our heart can get paralyzed by grief. You and I are not meant to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. Amy Carmichael was an Irish missionary working in India at the turn of the 20th century, rescuing young Hindi girls from temple prostitution. And she felt this as a really deep burden, but she became discouraged at some failures rescuing particular girls until she had a vision. She writes, At last a day came when the burden grew too heavy for me. And then it was as though the tamarind trees about the house were not tamarind, but olive. And under one of those trees, our Lord Jesus knelt, and he knelt alone. And I knew that this was his burden, not mine. It was he who was asking me to share it with him, not I who was asking him to share it with me. After that, there was only one thing to do. Who that saw him kneeling there could turn away and forget. Who could have done anything but go into the garden and kneel down beside him under the olive trees? God showed Amy that it was God who was carrying the burden and that she simply needed to join in with him. You join in with him and he releases the resources of heaven to you. And Jesus is lamenting over the youth of black and over many other situations of local and national need. And the question is, is will we open our eyes and join in with the cries of his heart? Will we go into the garden and kneel with him? The theologian Frederick Buechner writes, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep need meet. Sometimes the great gladness comes first when God calls us. I was a theatre director for years. I worked in the creative arts. I was driven by my great gladness and personal passion. But sometimes the great need of the world burdens us, and it just comes like a a weight for a while. I remember after, after years of working in theatre and documentaries, I was sitting in front of the laptop one day, and I just went on to the site of a theological college. I'd looked at it before with disinterest, mild skepticism. But there I was again. And suddenly, it was like I got sucked into the screen. It was alarming. And I went reluctantly on a 24-hour retreat to fast and pray. Lord, what is this about? And nothing happened. God didn't speak until the very end, seconds from when I was about to leave and I was still praying. And the phrase that dropped into my head was this, commit and the passion will come later. And that's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear that God was calling me and stirring up my my passion and my deep gladness But he was saying, Commit, commit to the world's needs, and the passion will come later. And so I began a journey of exploring ordination, and 15 months later, there I was at theological college. And the passion had come. The Christian call is always an invitation to join in with God's heart. Now, Nehemiah's call wonderfully, it's not one to ordination, he's not a priest. He's not a man with a spiritual roadmap. He's a pragmatist with a practical program. He wants to rebuild walls. And we mustn't make an idol of ordination. The fact is God longs for us to bring the kingdom through every sector of work and society. He's calling people in health and education and the arts and politics and business and the law and so on to restore and heal and renew. But how does Nehemiah go forward? Because he could have remained locked in grief, just like Amy Carmichael was threatening to. With Nehemiah, though, lament turns into longing, turns into praying to God, turns into pleading with God. The call provokes a crisis that only prayer can resolve. Prayer becomes the arena in which Nehemiah works out the terms of his destiny. And in a true crisis, we have to develop patience. Nehemiah spends four months in prayer. Imagine that. Because he understands that deep things take time to come to birth. And he must wait for God to give him a vision. He resists the relief of a a quick fix, an immediate decision. And what follows? Well, prayer brings the vision, prayer reveals the steps. And prayer determines his timing. So what can we learn from how Nehemiah prays? Well, firstly, he prays to a big God. He prays to the God of Abraham and every successive generation. Oh, Lord, God of heaven, is Nehemiah's prayer. And it's his prayer here, and it's his prayer throughout the book. If you shrink-wrap God, you'll get a shrunk-wrap answer from him. And Nehemiah's name itself, it means comfort of Yahweh. And it carries that in two senses. Nehemiah knows what it is to be comforted by Yahweh. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. We need a comforter because the world is not always a spiritually or physically comfortable place. But the name also means that Nehemiah will bring the comfort of Yahweh to other people. Yahweh is going to bring his comfort through Nehemiah as Nehemiah travels to Jerusalem and gets alongside the people there. Secondly, Nehemiah prays, I confess the sins we Israelites have engaged in. He doesn't put any distance between himself and the people of Jerusalem and preceding generations. He doesn't stand apart from them. He wraps himself in the problem. He makes himself part of the problem He stands in the gap on behalf of others. And thirdly, he acknowledges the history of how all these problems have arisen and the history of God's covenant relationship with his people. One where God gave his his love and his law and his blessing to the people of God, but where they turned away in disobedience and unfaithfulness. And one where God promised that he would always turn back to them provided they turn back to him. You see, God's promises, there are our, our history. Our history is in this book, the Bible. Nehemiah's call, it's not coming out of nowhere. He doesn't have a thin destiny, he has a thick destiny. And it's all wrapped together with the history of the promises of God. And what Nehemiah's sense of history shows him is that God has made him promises and that God cares. And so fourthly, after four months of prayer, gripped by his burden, Nehemiah challenges God's honor. He insists on holding him to his promise. And this is what he prays. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. When God gives us a call, God is true to his deepest promises. In 1950, in the Hebridean revival of Lewis, A blacksmith stood up in a nighttime prayer meeting, prayed a mighty prayer, and he concluded with this, very much the same as Nehemiah. He said, God, do you not know that your honor is at stake? You promised to pour out floods on dry ground, and you are not doing it. God, your honor is at stake, and I challenge you to keep your covenant engagements. And the church leader who'd asked him to pray that said at that moment that whole granite house shook like a leaf. And as they went outside, it was 2 a.m. in the morning. They have long prayer meetings there. They found the whole village alive, quote, ablaze with God. People carrying chairs around asking if there was spare room in the church. God issues the call. God fulfills the promise and post COVID it's not going to be about reset to the old normal it will be about rebuild and it will be about new build and God needs new vision from you from us he needs new solutions in business and the arts and education and health and trade and architecture what's your vision for God's building project Because Jesus' heart still breaks. He's still weeping, not under the tamarind tree, but under the flyovers around the ring road and up at Carfax and back in the nations that you've traveled from to come and study here. God is looking for willing hearts and for people ready to step into their destiny. He did it with Jackie Pullinger calling her to the drug drug addicts of Hong Kong. He did it with Heidi Baker, calling her to the orphans of Mozambique. He did it with Henry Martin, the man on the right in the mission window behind me, one of the brightest mathematics students Cambridge University had ever seen, one of the youngest fellows ever, called instead to go to India at the age of 24 as a missionary. He wrote in his journal on arrival there, I feel pressed in spirit to do something for God. I've hitherto lived to little purpose, more like a clod than a servant of God. Now let me burn out for God. And six years later, he translated the New Testament into Hindi and Persian and supervised its translation into Arabic. And that changed countless lives. And then with tuberculosis and fever in his veins, he died at the age of 31. A life a blaze for God. Now Nehemiah has positioned himself in his prayer as part of the problem. And what God's going to do now is exactly what he did to Jackie Pullinger and Heidi Baker and to Henry Martin. He's going to say to him, Nehemiah, the answer to your prayer is you. You are the answer to the problem. God's not calling him to send a cut of his salary to Jerusalem. He's not calling him to send a memo telling them to rebuild the walls. He's not calling him to pray for somebody in Jerusalem to be raised up to do the job. He's the God of Isaiah 61, the God who calls each of us to be rebuilders of ancient ruins, restorers of places long devastated, and renewers of ruined cities. And so Nehemiah prays, give your servants success today, by granting him favour in the presence of this man. He says to God, I'm personally ready to act. And now at the end of the chapter, we finally learn who Nehemiah is. I was cupbearer to the king. The thing is, a call cool pursuit, it always leads you to a gatekeeper. It always leads you to the person who holds the key to the new realm you're seeking to enter. And the gatekeeper here is He's the most powerful man in the ancient world of that time. He's King Artaxerxes. He's the very head of the Persian Empire. A man, incidentally, who'd murdered two of his brothers on his way to the throne. And Nehemiah is the security official entrusted with tasting and testing the king's wine for fear of poisoning. A man who daily risks his life on the king's behalf a role where a high-risk conversation with the king could be fatal. Remember the cupbearer who comes into prison with Joseph in Genesis 40. Everything in this chapter, you can spin it differently. Nehemiah could have heard the news from Jerusalem, and he could have said, I'm too far away. I'm the right-hand man of a powerful despot. I'm actually on a very steady career progression here that's doing me nicely. I know nothing about building works. I'm not very good at working with people who are coming out of disaster and trauma. I'd be hated there for being an outsider who's lived in the gilded cage of the Persian court. But Nehemiah's call is not going to be no, it's yes. He isn't going to be a yes man to Artaxerxes any longer. He's going to be a yes man to God. He stands in a palace at the nerve center of the Persian Empire, but he'll go from there to rebuild Jerusalem's walls, to reintegrate the community, to realign it in worship, to bring justice to the poor. He'll leave the center of power to go and stand In the place of brokenness. How about you? You're in Oxford. It's a strategic centre for growing people of destiny. It's a place where you can hear world news and local news. You can receive God's call. You can get equipped. And you can be sent out. Because God's looking for people hungry to make a difference for Christ if the band would like to come up. God prepared a man 900 miles away from the heart of the problem to be its solution. And he placed him perfectly to ask a person in power for all the resources he'd need. It's like this. There was a destiny preparation. Nehemiah raised up in that role. There was a destiny revelation, the vision to rebuild a city's broken walls and there was a destiny fulfillment. Those walls rebuilt in 52 days after a gap of 130 years. A destiny arc from beginning to end. But it never looks like that in the beginning. It just looks like a man who sits down and weeps. The founder of Apple, Steve Jobs said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You can't, you don't strategize a destiny. God births the destiny in the crucible of a thousand tiny decisions. And Amy Carmichael said it is a safe thing to trust Him to fulfill the desire that He creates. He calls us. And he provides for us, and we find that the dots connect. And everywhere in our city and our nation and our world, there are broken down walls. And God's asking us tonight to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the people sitting in their ruins. The God who calls us into our destiny, the God whose presence we meet in tonight. Amen. Let's stand.